little story of the encounter, the um, visit between Mary and her cousin Elizabeth. Luke 1, 39-45. Just getting you up to speed a little bit in case you've missed some of pre- the previous sermons of the storyline here and this Advent sermon series that we're in. Um, the series is titled Expecting because it's Advent, is a season of expecting. And uh, again, I want to give credit to a professor of mine, Scott Jose, a professor at Calvin Seminary, who titled his devotional Advent series, Expecting. And I'm wanting to preach a sermon series on, on Mary's experience of preparing for Jesus to enter the world. thought this would be the perfect title um, for this series as well. And so Mary, uh, in Luke 1, it is recorded, has been visited by the angel Gabriel. He's told her she will be with child by the Holy Spirit and that her child will be the Son of God. So Gabriel has told Mary also, as he's informed her of this, that her cousin Elizabeth, who is an elderly woman, was also pregnant. And uh, the angel says very specifically is already in her sixth month of pregnancy. And so last week we observed that quickly after Mary learns this, she journeys to see her cousin. And uh, we'll read that in the opening verses of our passage. So today's passage will tell us what happened um, between these cousins, both of whom had been blessed with miraculous pregnancies. Uh, Having already prayed that God would, would bless our understanding of his word, let's read starting at Luke 1, verse 39. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several weeks ago in my last sermon series on the life of David, we learned about the friendship between David and Jonathan. And here we see another example of rich fellowship in this passage. The Holy Spirit prompts people to come together, to be close to one another in friendship, in fellowship. And we saw that occurring um, wonderfully with a powerful description that Luke gives us of Mary's arrival in Elizabeth's home. So the Holy Spirit has inspired Mary to travel and see her cousin. And when Mary arrives, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, welcomes her cousin, the passage said, did you notice, with a loud cry. Uh, The original Greek passage um, is is very emphatic about how loud Elizabeth was and how excited she was, um, even verbally, to see her cousin. And so Elizabeth, with a, a loud voice, blesses the child in Mary's womb. John, who's not even born yet, Elizabeth's son, um, he even responds 
to this fellowship by leaping for joy in his mother's womb. The Apostle Paul concluded his second letter to to the Corinthians praying that they would live in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And we see a picture of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in this little story. You see references to the Spirit prompting Elizabeth to prophesy over Mary and her child. We even see the Spirit at work in the life of an unborn child, that is John the Baptist. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is what we see in this story. Does your life look like this? Does your life look like the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we see described here? I continue to see articles that decry the destructive effects of loneliness in our culture today, where so many people are living a lifestyle that is so distant from this This beautiful picture of shalom, of wholeness, of fellowship in Luke chapter 1. Especially in cases where a person's family relationships have been strained, there are so many people in our culture who are starved for fellowship, who are starved for friendship. And this can even happen in the church as well, where people never really feel truly known by someone, don't really know what's happening in the lives of other people, and neither do they feel known by other people. The Surgeon General of the United States right now, Vivek Murthy is his name, released a, a report this past May about this matter of loneliness and isolation in our culture. We should take note when Um, Even in government agencies, there is recognition that loneliness and isolation is sweeping through the nation where we live. So Vivek Murthy in, in May released a report titled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. He calls it an epidemic. Here's a quote in the opening pages of that report, he says, So he had been traveling around, and here's how he describes his conversations with people. He said, people began to tell me they felt isolated, invisible, and insignificant. Even when they couldn't put their finger on the word lonely, time and time again, people of all ages and socioeconomic backgrounds from every corner of the country would tell me, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself, or... If I disappear tomorrow, no one will even notice. What Vivek Murthy is describing here is people feeling distant from one another. People feeling isolated, invisible, and insignificant, like no one even notices them or cares about who they are. In his great book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis gives a description of hell that is very similar to what Vivek Murthy describes in his report on the epidemic of loneliness. In The Great Divorce, the, it's a fable where people have an opportunity to, to go from hell to visit heaven for a little while. And in the, in the opening um, section of that book, C.S. Lewis is describing what the relationships are like in hell. And, and he says there, that, that hell is a place where people are always moving further and further away from each other. 
So he, he describes it uh, quite eloquently saying, just in the moment that somebody realizes you're a little too close to your neighbor, you have to get up and move a little bit further away. And so he calls hell this place of a constant experience of separation. Separation from God and separation from other people. Jesus described hell as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And furthermore, we can think of hell as a place where you are, where, where a person is, has weeping and gnashing of teeth and has to deal with it by yourself as well. So in that sense, many people are experiencing something of hell in this life. Being isolated, alone, feeling insignificant. It might even seem a little strange to say this, but some people don't even have very good fellowship with themselves. Where there's, there's something within you that you don't like very much. And so even when you're alone would feel kind of isolated from your own self in kind of a, a psychological, even spiritual way. Here's how that looks. Anybody who lives in one way at church and in a different way at work and then functions differently as a different kind of person at home or with your friends, that person is divided against his or herself. And so what a truly lonely feeling it is when you're alone and you don't even like yourself. That you could feel even further isolated, and this is the work of the devil to make to divide. To divide us not just from God and from other people, but even to divide us within our own selves. But what is the work of Christ? Reunion. The work of Christ is to create reunions. Of course, we know that his mission was to reunite us to God to bring us into fellowship with God through his death on the cross. But in addition to that work of reunion, that vertical work of reunion that Jesus came to accomplish and did accomplish, he also reunites people to one another as well. In addition to that spiritual union we have with God through Christ, the work of Jesus is also to unite people to one another. God restores relationships. He strengthens relationships. Walking with God, you will find yourself walking alongside other people as well. So what a, a, a distinct contrast we see from that picture painted for us by the Surgeon General and described even for, furthermore in more theological terms by C.S. Lewis as a life of isolation and distance with the life of the Christian which is to live in fellowship with God, to be known by God, to know God, and to be known by one another in Christian fellowship. So what we learn from Elizabeth's words are not only how friendships are renewed, but how the Spirit works. How does the Spirit work in community? The Spirit binds people together through the truth. Many of the commentaries that I read this week taught that the description of Elizabeth in this story follows the pattern of a description of a prophet in the Old Testament. And so in the Old and New Testaments, there are men and women who prophesy, who speak what is true, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and say what is true for the building up of the people of God. 
That's the work of a prophet, or in this case, a prophetess like Elizabeth. It very clearly follows this, um, this little structure of describing the work of a prophet, and it's the same thing that happens with the prophetess Anna after Jesus is born, where somebody is filled with the Spirit to go and, and speak something that is true and, and move closer in relationship with other believers. So, here we are reminded that prophetic speech isn't just about warning, it isn't just about woes, about sinful people, but Elizabeth's prophecy is a word of rich encouragement for her cousin. And a a very creative foreshadowing, too. Uh, We hear Elizabeth saying something that John would say, almost the same words, 30 years later at the baptism of Jesus. And so in Luke 1, verse 43, we have Elizabeth saying, Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So she's a humble prophet. (laughs) Wow, she's amazed that, that Mary, the mother of her Lord, would be in her presence. And then when Jesus and John are both adults 30 years later, Jesus would come to John to be baptized, and John says in Matthew 3, 14, almost the same thing that Elizabeth said to Mary. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And do you come to me? That's the humble attitude of a Christian, not just of um, these prophets in the scriptures that are described saying this, but this is the humble attitude that the Spirit would stir in each of us. Oh God, what a blessing that you would come to me. So my purpose in pointing this out is that the Spirit creates fellowship, but also a sense of humility in the presence of God. The more in sync with the Spirit I am, the more amazed I am to be counted among the people of God, the more amazed that I am that that Christ Jesus would come to me. Like Elizabeth, like John the Baptist, the servant of God, the one who is filled with the Spirit, is humbled. I'm thankful for this passage and how it teaches that the Spirit produces unity and the unity that we have with God is, is kept by humility, the humility of people who recognize that they, where they sit in relation to God in relation to other people. So earlier we heard how people feel isolated and anxious distant from one another. And unfortunately, some people resist the Spirit's work in their life and they choose that isolation over community. Why would somebody choose to be lonely, isolated, distant from other people instead of engaging in a relationship with God through Christ or engaging in a life in a church or a life in community? Why would people choose that life of loneliness? Because they refuse to be humbled. Because they want things their way. And in community, especially in relationship to God, you will be humbled. You'll also be exalted, lifted up, brought up into the presence of God so wonderfully, um, fed there, uh, blessed there in the presence of God, receive blessings in his presence. But it is a, a humbling thing to be near the Lord, and it's a humbling thing to be in relationship with other people as well. Don't we all know that, that a, a know-it-all, A prideful person is somebody who is difficult to have a strong relationship with. 
And so it's so often the case people choose that, that pride and that isolation over relationship that requires humility. But where the Spirit of the Lord is at work, there is relationship, there is connection, reunion. Any person who lives in right relationship to God and is growing in their enjoyment of Christian fellowship will be somebody who is humble and grateful. So we can think again of Mary's description of herself um, earlier in Luke chapter 1 where she called herself, or she said of herself, I am the Lord's servant. And we can add to that by remembering that when people keep that same attitude, the Lord will bless the Lord's servants with community with each other as we're humble before God and as we approach one another with humility. This is exactly what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount in in the Beatitude where he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's a big misunderstanding in our culture of what it means to be meek. I looked up the definition, Merriam-Webster, one of their definitions is to be somebody who doesn't have any courage, somebody who's really weak-minded. That's not the biblical definition of meekness. Somebody who's meek is humble. It actually takes a lot of strength to be humble. So Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the humble, the servants, for they will inherit the earth and will sing just in a little while, where meek souls will receive him, the dear Christ enters in. Where meek souls will receive him in humility, knowing we need that fellowship with God through Jesus, it's, it's there, it's in that person's heart and mind that the dear Christ enters in. So Mary and Elizabeth and even John, before he's born, <laughs> have this blessing of fellowship with the Lord with Christ. It's those who are meek, humble, grateful servants who live well in community with God and with each other. The Spirit produces this attitude among us. Now, we can't consider this passage today without paying attention to the the moral teaching that it also gives us concerning how we think of unborn people. This is a wonderful passage that teaches us that that little one in Elizabeth's womb and in Mary's womb at this time are people. And this isn't going to be a whole sermon about abortion, but this is, we have to pay some attention to what is happening here because there are four human characters in this story. Not two adults and two developing humans, Four human people, Elizabeth, Mary, John, and Jesus. And so I understand that in our culture, abortion is regarded as a political issue, but it is certainly among the list of ethical issues that even supersedes politics. This is a passage that calls us to love and protect fellowship with the unborn. Isn't it an amazing passage in doing that? I've watched many, many hours of debates. Um, Maybe it's kind of a a nerdy thing, I guess, that I do as a pastor, but I love to watch debates. And so many, it's a matter that I'm passionate about, concern this issue of abortion, where um, 
people, Christian people, would go out on the street or outside Planned Parenthood clinics and just talk with people in a very controlled way and a loving way, trying to help people see the truth and even academic types of debates. And in every debate that I've seen, the question comes down to a simple matter. When does life begin? If it begins at conception, like what this passage teaches, the unborn people are our neighbors. And the Christian is called to love and protect our neighbors. Modern science and this passage both align to teach that an unborn baby is a person. Very clearly, especially in the case of John the Baptist, who has a response to being in the presence of Jesus before he's even born. Jesus and John the Baptist had personhood long before they were born. Thinking especially of Jesus, let's remember the timeline of events. I think this is the best passage in all the scriptures in convincing us that life begins right at conception. Before, in this pre-scientific culture, we see that Jesus is having an effect on people around him very early. Um, Again, thinking of the timeline of events, Mary receives the, the message of Gabriel and it says very clearly, in those days, she, she arose and went with haste to the hill country. It would have taken about five days for her to travel from Nazareth, where she um, received the visit from Gabriel, to where Ze- uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. They don't know what town they lived in, very likely the town of Hebron in the, town, in the area of Judah. About five days for her to travel that distance. And why do we go through this timeline? It's to, to show that that the language of, of the text is pointing us that, that Jesus is having an impact on people in the first days of after um, the holy conception happened in the womb of Mary. So no matter how you calculate the timing, Mary would have been very early in her pregnancy when she met Elizabeth. And yet Jesus is already blessing his mother, blessing Elizabeth, blessing even John the Baptist, very likely in the first weeks of his life. So given that timeline, I I believe this is the best passage in the Bible for arguing against the practice of abortion in all stages. Luke tells the story with five characters. There's the Holy Spirit, and there are four other people, Mary, Elizabeth, John, and Jesus. And there's a tremendous spiritual lesson in this passage, sort of bringing it back to Uh, the the spiritual lesson on top of the moral lesson as well that the spirit will prompt people to love fellowship where the spirit of god is at work a mother will love fellowship with her child where the spirit of god is at work uh, people will have fellowship with one another even in this case immediate friendship of john the baptist and jesus before both were even born So the Spirit will always inspire a love for fellowship. And the opposite is also true. That if you sense a desire to hate, to dispose of someone, to break fellowship, to completely give up on someone, which is the nature of abortion, that feeling is not from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces in us a love of fellowship. Of course, um, this beautiful picture of fellowship between Mary and 
her unborn child, Jesus, Elizabeth, her unborn child, John, and even the fellowship that they all have with one another. So, there are many moral, complicated moral situations that we will face in our lives. And so we need God's word to cut through the fog of our understanding and provide basic principles on which we make our decisions. And the moral principle in this passage is that the Spirit will prompt fellowship, a love of life, and a joyful reception of a child. Inspired by the Spirit, Elizabeth quotes Psalm 127, verse 3. That's what she is quoting when she sees Mary. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. She loves that she is pregnant, that Mary is pregnant, and she, uh, she exalts the Lord because this is a good thing. So we've touched on some seemingly disconnected themes this morning, and there's a, a common thread, thinking first about friendship, and then about humility, and then about valuing life. What's the common thread in those things? It's that the Spirit causes people to move towards one another in friendship and humility and in valuing one another. That that's what we see happening in this passage, that the Spirit is at work bringing reunion, um, prompting people to value life. At the center of it all is, of course, Jesus. All Mary does here is show up. And the joy of being in Jesus' presence solidifies Elizabeth's friendship to her, it humbles Elizabeth, and causes Elizabeth also to celebrate. So Mary's work as God's servant isn't to change the whole world. Mary's work as God's servant is to carry Jesus, is to show up. God does the work of reunion and of creating joy in relationships. There's a little poem about this and how... um, how this could look in our lives. And and I hope that the poem would inspire you to carry Christ into your relationships as well. I know that poems are a little bit risky to use in a sermon because you have to pay close attention to the words to, to get the meaning. But this one I think we can get right away. By Lucy Shaw wrote an Advent um, series of poetry called Accompanied by Angels. It's a book describing this situation so Beautifully, she says, framed in light, Mary sings through the doorway. Elizabeth's six-month joy jumps, a palpable greeting, a hidden first encounter between son and son. And my heart turns over when I meet Jesus in you. A hidden first encounter between son and son. The Apostle Paul calls us Christ's ambassadors, which means we represent Christ to other people. And in the same passage, Paul says that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, of reunion, that we as Christians, filled with the Spirit of God, would walk into work, walk into our home, walk into church, carrying the Spirit of Christ so that there might be reunion wherever we go. So this week, brothers and sisters, pray that you will carry Christ 
into every situation. And that as a result of your being with other people, that they would experience the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray that we would have the blessing of your Spirit who in, in, for each of us prompts us to move towards you and towards one another in fellowship. Lord, we pray for broken relationships in families, in our church, in our community. And Lord, we pray that your Spirit would bring reunion, that where two or three people are reconciled, that we would see that it's there, that Christ is present. God, we praise you for reconciling us to yourself through Christ. And Lord, out of humble gratitude, we pray that you would move us towards other people, carrying Christ to them, fulfilling this ministry of reconciliation that you have given us. God, we, pray, we praise you for fellowship that we have through your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we will sing now, O Little Town of Bethlehem, and um, a great song reminding us of the world that Jesus was born into, longing to, uh, to see the Messiah, and that Christ came and entered in so wonderfully. Let's stand together and sing.
conclude this, eve- this morning service hearing that blessing that the Apostle Paul concluded his letter to the Corinthians with. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.